Hello everyone, grab some snacks, grab a drink, and please remember not to open your window no matter what you see or may hear outside of the vehicle. And with that, please buckle up and let's get a move on to exit 66. A story by E.F. Benson. A tale of an empty house. It had been a disastrous afternoon. Rain had streamed increasingly from a low gray sky, and the road was the vilest of description. There were sections consisting of sharp flints, newly laid down and not yet rolled into amenity, and the stretches in between were worn into deep ruts and bouncing holes so that it was impossible anywhere to travel at even a moderate speed. Twice we had punctured, and now, as the stormy dusk began to fall, something went wrong with the engine, and after crawling on for a hundred yards or so, we stopped. My driver, after a short investigation, told me that there was half an hour's tinkering to be done, and after that we might, with luck, trundle along in a leisurely manner, and hope eventually to arrive at Corthrope, which was the proposed destination. We had come when this stoppage occurred to a crossroad. Through the driving rain, I could see on the right a great church, and in front a huddle of houses. A consultation of the map seemed to indicate that this was the village of Riddington. The guidebook added the information that Riddington possessed an hotel and the sign post at the corner endorsed them both. To the right along the main road into which we had struck was Corthrope, 15 miles away and straight in front of us. Half a mile distance was the hotel. The decision was not difficult. There was no reason why I should get to Corthrope tonight instead of tomorrow. For the friend whom I was to meet there would not arrive until the next afternoon and it was surely better to limp half a mile with the spasmatic engine than to attempt fifteen on this inclement evening. We'll spend the night here, I said to my chauffeur. The road dips downhill, and it's only half a mile to the hotel. I dare say we shall get there without using the engine at all. Let's try anyhow. We hooted and crossed the main road and began to slide very slowly down a narrow street. It was impossible to see much, but on either side there was little houses, with lights gleaming through blinds, or with blinds still undrawn. Revealing cozy interiors, then the incline grew steeper, and close in front of us I saw masts against a sheet of water that appeared to stretch unbroken into the rain, shrouded gloom of the gathering night. Riddington, then most on the open sea, though how it came about that boats should be tied up to an open quay of wall was a puzzle. But perhaps there was some jetty invisible in the darkness which protected them. I heard the chauffeur switch on his engine as we made a sharp turn to the left, and we passed below a long row of lighted windows shining out on the rather narrow road. On the right edge of which the water lapped, again he turned sharply to the left, described a half-circle on crunching gravel, and drew upon the door of the hotel. There was a room for me, 
there was a garage and there was a room for him and dinner had not begun. Among the little excitements and surprises of travel, there is none more delightful than that wakening in a new place at which one has arrived after nightfall on the previous evening. The mind has received a few hints and dusky impressions, and probably during sleep it has juggled with these, constructing them into some sort of coherent whole, and next morning its anticipations are put to the proof. Usually, the eye has seen more than it can consciously register, and the brain has fitted together as in the manner of a jigsaw puzzle, a very fair representation of its immediate surroundings. When I awoke next morning, a brilliantly sunny sky looked in at my windows. There was no sound of wind or of breaking waves, and before getting up and verifying my impressions of the night before, I lay and washed in my imagined picture. In front of the windows, there would be a narrow roadway, bordered by a quay wall. There would be a breakwater, forming a harbor for the boats that lay at the anchor there. And away, away to the horizon, would stretch an expansion of still and glittering sea. I ran over these points in my mind. They seemed an inevitable inference from the glimpses of the night before, and then, assured of my correctness, I got out of bed and went to the window. I have never experienced so complete a surprise. There was no harbor, there was no breakwater, and there was no sea. A very narrow channel, three quarters choked with sandbanks on which now rested the boats whose masts had seen the previous evening ran parallel to the road, and then turned at the right angles and went off into the distance. Otherwise, no water of any sort was visible. Right and left, in front, stretch a limitless expansion of shining grass and tufts of shrubbery growth, and great patches of purple sea lavender beyond were tawny sandbanks, and further yet, a line of shingle and scrub and sand dunes. But the sea, which I had expected to fill the whole circle of the visible world till it met the sky on the horizon, had totally disappeared. After the first surprise at this colossal conjuring trick was over, I dressed quickly in order to ascertain from local authorities how it was done. Unless some hallucination had poisoned my perspective facilities, there must be an explanation of this total disappearance, alternately of sea and land, and the key, when supplied was simple enough. That line of shingle and scrub and sand dunes on the horizon was a penicilla running for four or five miles parallel with the land, forming the true beach, and it enclosed this vast basin of sandbanks and mud banks and level lavender-covered marsh, which was submerged at high tide and made an estuary. At low tide, it was altogether empty, but for the stream that struggled out through various channels to the mouth of it two miles away to the left, and there was easy passage across it for a man who carried his shoes and stockings. To the far sand dunes and beaches which terminated at Riddington Point, while at high tide you could sail out from the quarry just in front of the hotel and be landed there.
The tide would be out of the estuary for five or six hours yet. I could spend the morning on the beach or, taking my lunch, walk out to the point and be back before the returning waters rendered the channel impassable. There was good bathing on the beach, and there was a colony of terns who nested there. Already, as I ate my breakfast at a table in the window overlooking the marsh, the spell of the attraction of it had begun to work. It was so immense and so empty. It had the allure of the desert about it, with none of the desert's intolerable monotony. For companies of chiding gulls hovered over it, and I could hear the pipe of red shank and the babble of curlews. I was due to meet Jack Granger in Corthrope that evening. But, if I went, I knew that I should persuade him to come back to Riddington, and from my knowledge of him, I was aware that he would feel the spell of the place not less potent than I. So having ascertained that there was a room for him here, I wrote him a note, saying that I had found the most amazing place in the world, and told my chauffeur to take the car into Carthrope to meet the train that afternoon and bring him here. And, with a perfectly clear conscience, I set off with a towel and a packet of lunch in my pocket to explore vaguely and gullously that beckoning immensity of lavender-covered, bird-haunted expanse. My way, as pointed out to me, led first along a sea bank, which defended and drained pasture land on the right of it from the high tides, and at the corner of that I struck into the basin of the estuary. A contour line of jetson, withered grass, strands of seaweed, and the bleached shells of little crabs showed where the last tide had reached its height, and inside it the marsh growth was still wet. Then came a stretch of mud and pebbles. Presently I was wading through the stream that flowed down to the sea. Beyond that were banks of ribbed sand swept by the incoming tides, and soon I regained the wide green marshes on the further side, beyond which was the bar of the shingle that fringed the sea. I paused as I re-showed myself. There was not a sign of any living human being within sight, but never have I found myself in so exhilarating of a solitude. Right and left were spread the lawns of sea lavender, starred with pink tufts of thrift and thickets of swayed bushes. Here and there were pools left in the depression of the ground by the retreated tide, and there were patches of smooth black mud out which grew like little spikes of milky green asparagus. A crop of glasswort, and all these happy vegetables flourished in sunshine of rain or salt of the flooding tides with impartial amphibiousness. Overheard was the immense arc of the sky, across which flew now a flight of duck, hurrying their necks outstretched, and now a lonely black-bucked gull, flapping his ponderous way seawards, curless, were bubbling, and red shank and ringed plover fluting, and now, as I trudged up the shingle bank, at the bottom of which the marsh came to an end, the sea, blue and waveless, lay stretched and sleeping bordered by a strip of sand on which far off a mirage hovered, but from end to end of it, as far as the eye could see, 
There was no sign of human presence. I bathed and basked on the hot beach, walked along for half a mile, and then struck back across the shingle into the marsh. And then, with a pang of disappointment, I saw the first evidence of the intrusion of a man into this paradise of solitude, for on a stony spit of the ground that ran like some great rib into the amphibious meadows. There stood a small square house built of brick, with a tall flagstaff set up in front of it. It had not caught my eye before, and it seemed unwarrantable invasion of the emptiness. But perhaps it was not so gross an infringement of it as it appeared, for it wore an indefiable look of desertation, as if man had attempted to domesticate himself here and had failed. As I approached it with this impression increased, for the chimney was smokeless, and the closed windows were dim, with the film of salt air, and the threshold of the closed door was patched with lichen and strewn with debris of withered grasses. I walked twice around it, decided that it was certainly uninhabited, and finally, leaning against the sun-baked wall, ate my lunch. The glitter of the heat of the day were at its height. Warmed and exercised and invigorated by my bathe, I felt strung to the supreme pitch of physical well-being, and my mind, quite vacant except for these felicitous impressions, followed the example of my body and basked in an unclouded content, and, I suppose, by a sense of the ludicrous luxury of contrast, it began to picture to itself, in order to accentuate these blissful conditions, what this sunlit solitude would be like when some November night began to close in underneath a low, gray sky, and a driving storm of sleet. Its solitariness would be turned into an abominable desolation if from some unconjurable cause one was forced to spend the night here. From the mind would long for companionship. How sinister would become the calling of the birds. How weird the whistle of the wind round the caravan of this abandoned habitation. Or would it be just the other way about? And would one only be longing to be assured that the seeming solitude was real, and that no invisible but encroaching presence, soon to be made manifest, was creeping nearer under cover of the dusk, and be shuddering to think that the wail of the wind was not only the wind, but the cry of some discarnate being, and that it was not the curlews who made the melancholy piping. By degrees, the edge of thought grew blunt and melted into inconsequent imaginings, and I fell asleep. I awoke with the start from a trouble of a dream that faded with waking, but felt sure that some noise close at hand had aroused me. And then it came again. It was the footfall of someone moving about inside the deserted house, against the wall of which my back was propped. Up and down it went, then paused, and began again. It was like that of a man who waited with impatience for some expected arrival 
I notice, also, that the footfall had an irregular beat, as if the walker went with a limp. Then, in a minute or two, the sound ceased altogether. An odd uneasiness came over me, for I had been so certain that the house was uninhabited. Then, turning my head, I noticed that in the wall just above me was a window, and the notion, wholly irrational and unfounded, entered my mind that the man who inside, who tramped, was watching me from it. When once that idea got a hold of me, it became impossible to sit there in peace anymore, and I got up and shoveled into my knapsack, my towel, and the remains of my meal. I walked a little further down the spit of land which ran into the marsh, and turned and looked at the house again, and again to my eyes it seemed absolutely deserted. But after all, it was no concern of mine, and I proceeded on my walk. To inquire casually on my return to the hotel who it was that lived in so hermitical a place, for a present dismissed the matter from my mind. It was some three hours later that I found myself opposite the house again. After a long, wandering walk, I saw that, by making an only slightly longer detour, I could pass close to the house again, and I know that the sound of the footsteps within it had raised in me a curiosity that I wanted to satisfy. And then, even as I paused, I saw that a man was standing by the door. How he came there I had no idea. For the moment before, he had not been there, and he must have come out of the house. He was looking down the path that led through the marsh, shielding his eyes against the sun, and presently he took a step or two forward and he dragged his left leg as he walked, limping heavily. It was his step then, which I had heard within, and any mystery about the matter was of my own making. I therefore took the shorter path and got back to the hotel to find Jack Granger had just arrived. We went out again in the gleam of sunset and watched the tide sweeping and pouring up the dikes. Until again the great conjuring trick was accomplished, and the stretch of march, with its fields of sea lavender, was a sheet of shining water. Far away across it stood the house by which I had launched. And just as we turned, Jack pointed to it. That's a queer place for a house, he said. I suppose no one lives there? Yes, a lame man, said I. I saw him today. I'm going to ask the hotel porter who he is. The result of this inquiry was unexpected. No, the house has been uninhabited several years, he said. It used to be a watch house from which the Coast Guard signaled if there was a ship in distress, and the lifeboat went out from here. But now the lifeboat and the Coast Guards are at the end of the point. Then who is the lame man I saw walking about there and heard inside the house? I asked. He looked at me, I thought, queerly. I don't know who that could be, he said. There's no lame man about here to my knowledge. The effect on Jack of the marshes and their gorgeous emptiness of the sun and sea was precisely what I had anticipated. He vowed that any day spent anywhere than on these beaches and fields of sea lavender was a day wasted. 
and proposed that the tour of which the main object had originally been the golf links of Norfolk should, for the present, be cancelled. In particular, it was the birds of this long, solitary headland that had enchanted him. After all, we can play golf anywhere, he said. There's an oyster catcher scolding, do you hear? And how silly to whack a little white ball, ringed plover. But that's what's calling as well? When you can spend a day like this, oh, don't let us go and bathe yet. I want to wander along that edge of marsh. Ha! <laughs> There's a company of turnstones. They make a noise like the drawing of a cork. There they are, those little chaps with the chestnut-colored patches. Let's go along the near edge of the marsh and come out by the house where your lame man lives. We took, therefore, the path with the longer detour, which I had abandoned last night. I had said nothing to him of what the hotel porter had told me that the house was unlived in, and all he knew was that I had seen a lame man, apparently in occupation there. My reason for not doing so, to make the confession at once, was that I already half believed that the steps I had heard inside and the lame man I had seen watching outside did not imply in the porter's sense of the word that the house was occupied. And I wanted to see whether Jack as well as myself would be conscious of any such tokens of a presence there. And then the oddest thing happened. All the way up to the house, his attention was alert on the birds, and in especial on a piping note which was unfamiliar to him. In vain he tried to catch sight of the bird that uttered it, and in vain I tried to hear it. It doesn't sound like any bird I know, he said. In fact, it doesn't sound like a bird at all, but like some human being whistling? There it is again! Is it possible you don't hear it? We are now quite close to the house. There must be someone who is whistling, he said. It must be your lame man. Lord, yes, it comes from inside the house. That's, so that's explained. And I hope it was some new bird, but why can't you hear it? Some people can't hear a bat squeak, said I. Jack, satisfied with the explanation, took no more interest in the matter and we struck across the shingle, bathed and lunched and tramped onto the tumble of the sand dunes in which the point ended. For a couple of hours we strolled and lazed there in the liquid and sunny air and reluctantly returned in order to cross the ford before the tide came in, and as we retraced our way I saw coming up from the west a huge continent of cloud. And just as we reached the spit of the land on which the house stood, a jagged sort of lightning flickered down to the low-lying hills across the estuary, and a few big raindrops plopped onto the shingle. We're in for a drenching, he said. Ha! Let's ask for shelter at your lame man's house. Better run for it. Already the big drops were falling thickly, and we scuttled across the hundred yards that lay between us and the house, and came to the door just as the solaces of heaven were pulled wide. He rapped on it, but there came no answer. He tried the handle of it, but the door did not yield. And then, by a sudden inspiration, 
he felt along the top of the lintel and found a key. It fitted into the wards, and the next moment we stood within. We found ourselves in a slip of passage at the end of which went up the staircases to the floor above. On each side of it was a room, one a kitchen, the other a living room. But in neither was there any stick of furniture. Discolored paper was peeling off the walls. The windows were thick with spidery weavings, the air heavy with unventilated damp. Your layman dispenses with the necessities as well as luxuries of life, said Jack, a Spartan fellow. We were standing in the kitchen. Outside, the hiss of rain had grown to a roar, and the bleared window was suddenly lit up with a flare of lightning. A crack of thunder answered it, and in the silence that followed, there came from just outside, audible now to me, the sound of a piping whistle. Immediately afterwards, I heard the door by which we had just entered violently banged, and I remembered that I had left it open. His eyes met mine. But there's no breath of wind, I said. What made it bang like that? And that was no bird that whistled, said he. There was the shuffle in the passage outside of a limping step. I could hear the drag of a man's lame foot along the boards. He has come in, said Jack. Yes, he had come in, and who had come in? At that moment, not fright, but fear, which is a very different matter, closed in on me. Fright, as I understand it, is an emotion, startling, but not unnerving. You may, under the finger of fright, spring aside. You may scream, you may shout. You have the command of your muscles. But as that limping step moved down the passage, I felt fear. The hand of the nightmare that, as it clutches, paralyzes and inhibits not only action, but thought. I waited, frozen and speechless, for what should happen next. Exactly opposite the kitchen door, in which we stood, the step stopped, and then, soundlessly and invisible, the presence that had made itself manifest to the outer ear entered. Suddenly, I heard Jack's breath rattle in his throat. Oh my God, he cried in a voice hoarse and strangled. He threw his left arm across his face as if defending himself, and his right arm, shooting out, seemed to hit it at something which I could not see. And then his fingers crooked themselves as if clutching at which had evaded his blow. His body was bent backward as if resisting some invisible pressure, then lunged forward again, and I heard the noise of a resisting joint, and saw on his throat the shadow, or so it seemed, of a clutching hand. At that some power of movement came back to me, and I remember hurling myself at the empty space between him and me, and felt under my grip the shape of a shoulder, and heard on the boards of the floor the slip and scoop of a foot. Something invisible, now a shoulder, now an arm, struggled in my grasp, and I heard a panting respiration that was not Jack's nor mine, 
And now, then in my face, I felt a hot breath, that stank of corruption and decay. And all the time, this physical contention was symbolic only. What he and I wrestled with was not a thing of flesh and blood, but some awful spiritual presence. And then, there was nothing. The ghostly invasion ceased as suddenly as it had begun, and there was Jack's face gleaming with sweat close to mine. As we stood with the dropped arms opposite each other in an empty room, with the rain beating on the roof of the gutters, chuckling, no word passed between us. But next, we were out in the pelting rain, running for the ford. Deluge was sweet to my soul, but it seemed to wash away that horror of great darkness and that odor of corruption in which we had been plunged. Now, I have no certain explanation to give the experience which has been shortly recounted, and the reader may or may not connect with it a story that I heard a week or two later on my return to London. A friend of mine and I had been dining at the house one evening, and we had discussed a murder trial then going on of which the papers were full. It isn't only the atrocity that attracts, he said. I think it is in the place where the murder occurs that it is the cause of the interest in it. A murder at Bringington or Margaret or Ramsgate, any place which the public associates with pleasure trips, attracts them because they know the place and can visualize the scene. But then there is a murder at some small, unknown spot which they never heard of. There is no appeal to their imagination. Last spring, for instance, there was a murder at the small village on the coast of Norfolk. I've forgotten the name of the place, though. I was in Norwich at the time of the trial and was present in court. It was one of the most awful stories I ever heard, as ghastly and sensational as this last affair, but it didn't attract the smallest attention. Odd that I can't remember the name of the place when all the rest is so vivid to me. Tell me about it, I said. I never heard of it. Well, there was this little village. Just outside it was a farm owned by a man called John Beardsley. He lived there with his only daughter, an unmarried woman of about 30. A good-looking, sensible creature, apparently. The last in the world you would have thought to do anything unexpected. There worked at the farm as a day laborer, a young fellow called Alfred Malden, who, in the trial of which I am speaking, was the prisoner. He had one of the most dreadful faces I ever saw, a cat-like receding forehead, a broad, short nose, and a great red sensual mouth always on the grin. He seemed positively to enjoy being the center figure around whom all the interest of those ghoulish women who thronged the court was concentrated. And when he shambled into the witness box, shambled? I asked. Yes, he was lame. His left foot dragged along the floor as he walked. As he shambled into the witness box, he nodded and smiled to the judge and clapped his counsel on the shoulder and leered at the gallery. He worked on the farm, as I was saying, doing jobs that were within his capacity, among which was certain housework. 
carrying coals and whatnot for John Beardsley, though very well off, kept no servant, and his daughter, Alice, that was her name, ran the house, and what must she do but fall in love? It was no less than that with this monstrous and misshapen fellow. One afternoon, her father came home unexpectedly and caught them together in the parlor, kissing and cuddling. He turned the man out of the house, neck and crop, gave him his week's wages and dismissed him, threatening him with a fine thrashing if he ever caught him hanging around the place. He forbade his daughter ever to speak to him again, and in order to keep watch over her, got in a woman from the village who would be there all day while he was on the farm. Young Malden, deprived of his job, tried to get work in the village, but none would employ him, for he was a black-tempered fellow, ready to pick a quarrel with anyone, and an unpleasant opponent for, with all his lameness, he was immense muscular strength. For some weeks he idled about in the village, getting a chance job occasionally, and no doubt, as you will see, Alice Beardsley managed to meet him. The village, its, its name still escapes me, lay on the edge of a big tidal estuary, full at high water but on the ebb of a broad stretch of march and sand and mud banks, beyond which a long belt of shingle that, fo that formed the seaward side of the estuary. On it stood a disused coast guard house a couple miles away from the village and in as lonely a place as you would find anywhere in England. At low tide, there was a shallow ford across it, and in the sandbanks round about in some beds of cockle, Malden, unable to get regular work, took to cockle digging, and during the summer, when the tide was low, Alice, it was no new thing to her, used to go over to the ford and the beach beyond the bathe. She would go across the sandbanks where the cockle diggers, Malden among them, were at work. And if he whistled as she passed, that was a signal between them that he would slip away presently and join her at the disused Coast Guard house, and there, throughout the summer, they used to meet. As the weeks went on, her father saw the change that was coming in her, and suspecting the cause, often left his work, and, hidden behind some sea bank, used to watch her. One day he saw her cross the ford, and soon after she passed he saw Malden, recognizable from a long way off by dragging his leg. Follow her. He went up to the path to the coast guard and entered. At that, John Beardsley crossed the ford and hiding in the bushes near the house, saw Alice coming back from her bath. The house was off the direct path to the ford, but she went round that way and the door was open to her and closed behind her. He found them together, and mad with rage, attacked the man. They fought the Malden, got him down, and then there, in front of his daughter, strangled him. The girl went off her head and is in the asylum at Norwich now. She sits all day by the window whistling. The man was hanged. Was Riddington the name of the village? I asked. Yes, Riddington, of course! He said, I can't think how I forgot it. And that was A Tale of an Empty House by E.F. Benson.
Alright everyone, we're finally at our exit, 666. Grab your things, unbuckle that seatbelt, and remember, try to be nice to the locals. I really wouldn't want to be reading about you next. Have a good night.